Hello and welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where I'm very pleased to bring you someone who is quite unique, actually. She is a neonatologist, but not only that, she is someone who was born Jewish and is now a practicing Roman Catholic, and that has a great impact on also what she does in her life. It's going to be great. Please stay tuned. Dr. Robin Perucci, please welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Praise God. Let's start as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Robin, I really want to start with uh, your conversion story, because uh, this it's such an incredible journey. You know we have uh, Mother Miriam, who is a great friend of mine. She runs a daily show on LifeSite News called the Mother Miriam Live Show. And uh, her journey is just so fantastic. It's inspired so many people. And yet you have uh, a similar kind of a journey. Uh, Where did your journey start? It really, in earnest, began when I went back to uh, school at Loyola. Although, you know, I had growing up, I had always been the kid who who liked Sunday school. Um, And I just I couldn't wait for people to be able to talk about God because it felt like I'd always been talking to him. Um, And then I learned kind of quickly that that wasn't normal. Um, And the rest of my family and friends kind of looked at me like, oh, that's a little odd. So I kind of learned to, you don't talk about prayer and you don't really admit um, that God is an active partner as an active part of your life. And I ended up, I was in a, a, a dance company and toured with them for a number of years, but the, the life in the performing arts world is every bit as weird as you hear. Organized religion just kind of went away for a while, although it always felt odd that I had done that. Um, and uh, when I left the dance company, I went back to Loyola really because I thought, because they got their application back to me first. I, I had no idea what a Jesuit was. I, I truly, I, um, I, I wanted to go into medicine uh, because I was dancing at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and many dear friends um, were, were dying. And it was awful. One of them, I remember actually even saying to me, my doctor has the personality of a bedpan. And I was like, oh, I can, I can do this better than that. So away, away I went. I never had a desire growing up to be a physician. No one in my family, they're doctors, they're teachers. But I always just knew I was going to be working with people, caring about people, um, was central. So I went back to Loyola and we had to take theology classes. It was part of the core curriculum. And on the schedule, it said, you know, introduction to Christian thinking. I'm like, no, that's not going to fly. But there was a, there was a class in old Testament. I was like, ah, that one's mine. Okay. I'm in. It did not occur to me to ever look to see who was teaching the class. Um, And so I still remember Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 o'clock, kids are all filing in and standing outside the door of that classroom was a priest in full clerics. 
and I was at first I was just terrified. I'm like, this is the enemy. I mean, my uh, I grew up with stories about pogroms. My great grandmother came here from Russia and escaped, you know, the Soviet Union when Jews weren't allowed to escape uh, to get out. So this this was very scary. Um, and if, and then by the time I you know, in the crush of kids coming in the room, by the time I already got to my seat, I had gone straight from being absolutely terrified of this guy to just really kind of ticked off going, all right, priest, bring it. Let's, <laughs> let's hear you say a Hebrew name. Let's hear you talk about these characters that I love and adore. And our Lord in our wisdom and interesting sense of humor, um, Gave me the absolute perfect person to talk about this. Father Mitch Pacwa, who's <laughs> known and beloved from EWTN, was my was teaching at Loyola. Wow. Father had just come back, I think, from finishing his PhD in Old Testament from Jerusalem. <laughs> um, speaks, you know, at that point, I think he only might have spoken nine or ten languages, opposed to now he's up to thirteen, including ancient Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. So. Um, I listened to him talking. Uh, first of all, he didn't. He he speaks way better Hebrew than I ever will in this lifetime. So <laughs> let me be clear on that. And he spoke with such love and reverence for these characters that I was like, "Hmm, okay." And as usual, because it is really so ingrained within the Jewish tradition, you ask questions. I mean, that's what the Mishnah and the Torah, uh, you know. Um, and the Talmud are all about, you don't silence voices, you ask questions, and then you write down the answers, and you argue about it. And that's just part of that wonderful tradition. So I couldn't resist the chance to ask questions. And by about class number three, I did get up the nerve to say, Father, I'd like to compliment you on your Hebrew. Could I talk to you maybe outside of class about this? Well, he was ecstatic. Um, and I once again was like, oh, now what have I done? Um, and um, he claims on that first visit that I yelled at him. <laughs> I don't think that's quite true. I do remember absolutely pointing at a Bible that he had on the front of his desk and said, okay. Do you believe in that? I mean, all of it, not the parts and pieces. Um, and he kind of chuckled at me and said, yeah. And from that moment, we spent the next three years. Actually, it's now been closer to 30 years still arguing with each other. But he wow. and God won. Um, as we, you know, and you, and in those early days, boy, there were three different Bibles open in Greek, Hebrew, English. Um, as we argued and debated and wrestled with everything under the sun, wow. as Solomon would say. What was for you one of the hardest things you remember um, going through that you had to confront? I remember reading Isaiah for the first time with eyes open. Go, And I don't know what I read before because I had seen parts of it, but I, I remember the night I was in the library reading Isaiah 53, you know, reading The Suffering Servant, and just, I was in tears going, when, when did Jesus get into this? Here he is. I mean, this is describing what happened. And then, of course, I went back to Psalm 22. And, uh, just, oh, my goodness. Um, I didn't know what to do. There was a point when 
from a cerebral way of thinking, you know, I agreed, yes, Jesus fulfilled everything, but the biggest stumbling block, bar none, was disappointing my family. I mean, I was the kid who just wanted, you know, to make Aliyah, to go back, you know, can I go back to Israel? Can I be part of youth group? And so for me to be the one that was going to say, I think there's something else, you guys. And one of the things, you know, in hindsight, Father Mitch has always commented on, he said, what he enjoyed about my story is I didn't get rid of the Judaism I loved and grew up with. Um, I actually refound it and I got to build on that. Um, I got the second chapter. Um, it wasn't a rejection of anything. Um, if anything, he always laughs at me that I became a better Jew um, and started following the laws a little bit better. Having to deal with facing my family was kind of put a stop to things for for a for a fair amount of time. And then, okay, this is the part that always gets ugh, uncomfortable to tell because it's just weird. It still is, um, but it brings me smack to my knees every time. Um, we had gotten to the point. It was just before Easter, I remember, and we were talking about um, our Lord on the cross, and I said, what is wrong with you people that you just, you pray to this guy up there bleeding, and no one goes to help him, you don't take him down, nothing, I don't understand this, and also, growing up in a Jewish home, the cross, the cross was a sign that from everyone else who for years said it's okay to kill the Jews. I mean, I kept reading, looking at the old, the new Testament going, where's the part where it says, go kill us. And it wasn't there. Um, and I knew I would be as big a hypocrite to turn back as the people who had spit on me growing up. Cause we grew up in a, a little bit of an anti-Semitic neighborhood. I can't turn away from this because what I'm reading is all this goodness and truth and light and um, no, I can't look away. And so we had, father and I had been talking about the cross and he had said, well, we'll just spend some time and pray. Like, okay. One night out of nowhere, I literally was, you know, in the apartment uh, by school and I in front of me should have been the route to my bedroom and to the side. It was turning into the kitchen. And I literally turned and there was our Lord, our crucified Lord. And I knew for the first time in my heart, the words I had put him there. Hmm. And from that nanosecond, it's like every molecule in my body changed Nothing else mattered except how do I follow him? And as important as that moment was, the follow-up conversation where I still was kind of asking, because why wouldn't I still be arguing? Um, I said, how do, can I take you down? How do I help? And it, it very clear within my heart, he very said, um, oh, no, I save you, not the other way around. And it is those, the gift of, of those moments that changes everything. And I knew my family would be disappointed. I knew that there was not going to be whatever road was going to be ahead. Okay. Nothing mattered. 
except I have to follow truth. Um, and it's all of it was gift because I didn't know any of it before him. There are a, a lot of people who go through similar experiences, not that usually that stark, um, but ones where they come to the point of faith and have to make that decision, whether they're leaving a, a Protestant church or a, another faith and disappointing their families. Once you even make the resolution, there's still the after effect. There's still the actual dealing with it uh, as as you live. How have you done that? How have you put up with that? I wish I could tell you I've lived this well nonstop from the moment I said yes. Uh, no. <laughs> um, and ironically, probably one of the biggest examples of that is the whole pro-life movement. I mean, growing up in a home that really embraced the ideology of abortion is fine. Um, it, and it was always a very cerebral discussion about how dare someone else come and make a decision for me that is, you know, very personal. Um, but I didn't realize how ingrained that was um, until confronted um, well after my baptism with, are you pro-life? And, and in that, by that point, it was in the medical context, in medical school and in residency. And I, good boy, I, I'm right there with Peter. I denied our Lord. I mean, I, I talked around the question. I avoided it. I said, oh, no, I'm not pro-life. You know, no, boy, a number of things happened. And it was, this one wasn't as stark a transition as that one moment. It was the little dribbles of things that keep happening. Um, I, I met my amazing husband, but we had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. Um, and I wasn't, at one point, I remember I wasn't mourning an idea. It was mourning the loss of real people that I wouldn't have the privilege of meeting or caring for. And that was brutal. That was already, while I, here I was, uh, doing my fellowship in neonatology, um, caring every day for, you know, for babies um, whose mom didn't know who dad was. And here I had this wonderful husband and, and you know, these, you know, 16 year olds who ate nothing but Cheetos and we were trying everything we could. Um, and that was rough, but it was eye opening as to why was this so troubling and it was, it was about the loss of a real person um, and the sadness of not getting to meet them. Um, and then even when I would admit it to myself, I still wouldn't admit it out loud to anyone um, until it was funny. I got called um, to go speak at a 40 Days for Life rally. And this woman called me out of the blue and said, oh, you've done all this amazing pro-life work and some things that I had written. And I'm thinking, I don't even admit to myself I'm pro-life. How do you know that? And it was just, it was really odd. I can't name any one moment that was the aha second when I stopped denying that, yeah, of course I'm pro-life. Um, how could I be anything else? Um, but yeah, over time that, the, yeah, I've clearly become more comfortable with that label. Um, 
and speak now as frequently as I can at pro-life dinners and, uh, and write um, uh, op-eds and other things that to try to say, yeah, these are real people. How do we care for them? And if oh, obstetricians have two patients, how come one can end up dead? Um, that doesn't seem to be caring well for both patients at the same time. It's truly fascinating that you're in the in the fetal field of neonatology because that comes with a, a just an incredible insight all by itself into what's going on, um, particularly with um, the the late term abortions, which because you're seeing them, you're seeing these little kids um, who are sometimes literally taken out of the womb and then put back in after surgery. Uh, so <laughs> this unreal. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and about um, your work now. You, you wrote a re- recent piece on fetal pain. Um, and uh, if you can tell us uh, how you got there and really what is the understanding? Because I know we were talking earlier about the lack of understanding that most people had on this. Um, and just this is actually a fairly new understanding that people have today. The These little people who I get to care for, I mean, they are very much part of my story um, and who rescued me as I, I cared, caring for babies who are 23, 22 weeks. I mean, they're literally the size of your hand. And the fact that these little ones, I, if they're born and I'm present, it is my, literally my ethical job, my medically and legally, ethically, I have to intervene. And yet you can still legally destroy the same person who in my hands, I get to try to save. That um, incredible paradox that we exist in is is absolute craziness. Um, How come it's a person in my hand and not someone of any worth in somebody else's? That doesn't make, that doesn't make any intuitive sense. Uh, And then when you get to the fetal pain discussion, first of all, so I, this is not theoretic to me, I care for babies who still have fetal physiology, meaning the fetal period, you know, if you start using the medical terms, literally starts at the eighth week, you know, after they complete the eighth week of gestation all the way through term. So the babies I care for are in the fetal stage of development and I watch them react to pain. It's not a theory. They grimace, they move, they cry, they smack you. They literally take their tiny little hands and will will bat at the offensive weapon <laughs> that is being poked um, at them. So it, it actually came as a total surprise to me that that was controversial um, until someone actually was at a, a, I was speaking about palliative care at a, at a conference and someone in the audience came up to me and said, well, what do you think about fetal pain? And I looked at them like, uh, it exists. Why, what, why are you asking this? And she was an obstetrician and said, have you read, you know, there was some work of some people who were actively doing abortions. And I'm like, Oh, that's a problem. Um, so I started looking, I started doing the research of why, why, why the disconnect? And I was, I was horrified to realize that um, it, as recently as 1992, which is the year that Dr. Anand and, and his group published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a remarkable article 
where they actually did a randomized study and compared term babies who were going to cardiac surgery. Some One group had appropriate anesthesia, one group did not, because even physicians didn't believe that babies could feel pain. Now, which is weird. Come on, there had to be physicians who were parents. You know your baby feels pain. But yet we went to actual surgery um, until that recently, not giving good anesthesia to the babies. And it was in that publication that they said, look, the babies have increased stress hormones. They have lactic acidosis, hyperglycemia. There was all these measurable changes when the babies were in pain, not to mention they tend to, they did better in surgery and post-op. They lived um, more than the kids who didn't have good anesthesia. Wow. Um, And this opened up a flood of research, which shows measurable changes, both acutely and long-term behaviorally and neurologic developmentally, all this stuff that happens when you consistently give pain, painful stimulus to someone whose nervous system is immature. Um, it's, the effects are dramatic. Um, and once again, they're measurable, they're real. Um, there's, there's nothing make-believe about this. Yeah. This, is, this is real science. And what that does is it actually amplifies, hopefully in people's minds, the horror of what taking a life in the, of the, womb, in the, in the womb is really all about. This so-called choice of, of killing your baby in the womb is just an unbelievably horrific thing. At what age do these children begin to feel pain as far as the science can tell? The science itself is still immature, if I can use that. Um, uh, there, there is gr- for sure solid evidence that at by twenty weeks, you know, there the babies react. Mm-hmm. Period. That's just not controversial. That's really solid. Go. There is growing evidence that down um, as low as twelve weeks. I've seen eight weeks that that because pain receptors are present. The part of the argument that had gone on is even just because you've got the pain receptors that are forming, they're not well hooked up to the central nervous system in your brain, uh, specifically out into the cortex. But what's developed in more, more recently is the admitting that there can be something called subcortical pain, that you don't even have to be maturely hooked up to the central nervous system for there to be long-term effects and at least a reaction to what they call noxious stimulus. It's not, it's, you know, just like how you develop throughout your entire life, you have different stages of development. Um, They're not inappropriate. They're just immature. Well, the same kind of things going on with the babies, their, their sense of pain is immature. They can't raise their hand and complain about it and tell you, please stop. That hurts. But their bodies physically react. There, there's actually a study um, that was done on fetuses that shows this. Um, one of the things that uh, babies sometimes need is a blood transfusion in utero. Mm-hmm. And so they did a study to show that when you gave the transfusion by a painful procedure, by basically putting the needle through the baby's abdomen to get to the hepatic vein, that hurts. And those babies, they could once again, even fetuses in utero, measure 
the stress hormone increase. And they, that stress hormone increase was not there when the blood transfusion was given basically through the umbilical cord, which doesn't have any neural endings. Um, so they even measured the mom's hormone levels to make sure he couldn't say it was moms that were giving it. No, it's the babies. Um, yeah, so that happened at 18 weeks. So like I say, there's, and it's hard to do a study in utero. I mean, you couldn't, ethically, you can't repeat some of the stuff that's been done before, like going to surgery without anesthesia. Um, we know this works. And fetal anesthesia, as you, you started to talk about where the baby technically is still in utero, fetal anesthesia, the anesthesia literature says, yes, you got it. you've got two patients there, the baby and the mom, and you have to treat the baby's pain too, and they have better outcomes. See, it's an incredible thing. And, and it just, when you're talking about the ages at which they're, they've already got pain receptors, that gets really bizarre because most women don't even know they're pregnant at eight weeks. At eight weeks, you've missed one time of the month and that's it. And you're thinking, oh, maybe I should go, you know, for the most part, you don't even know. And so most abortions are happening uh, in and around that time. So, yeah, America, the whole world. Uh, but, you know, in America, we have, you know, a million a year. This is, it's impossible even to think about. But you've been... Uh, in this field, how long now in in, do, in neonatology? I've been in practice 20 years. Wow. So have in my privilege to see so many changes um, as we be, become better at not just rescuing babies, babies at smaller and smaller ages, their long-term outcomes are better. So I mean, that is, uh, you know, amazing to be, to be part of that advance. Um, one of the things actually along the same topic that has changed in the practice of neonatology is recognizing that it's not just about decreasing the obvious painful stimulus, you know, blood draws and um, that kind of stuff, but also improving the whole environment of the baby. Um, something called kangaroo care, where we get the babies right onto mama's chest um, I always argue about who's happier, mom or baby. Um, but, uh, you know, all of those things, just parents t looking at them and saying, I need you at the bedside. Your baby was listening to you in, in utero and literally will be neurologically better off. We know their outcomes are better. If you come in, hold your baby, talk to your baby, read to them at the bedside, um, even if it's a band of Dr. Seuss book, please go ahead and go read to them. <laughs> Your presence is important in their development and you are part of their medical miracle of what goes on. Um, so, you know, one of the best things neonatology teaches us again and again and again is real humility hmm. before what we don't know. Like I say, the, you know, fetal pain, like I say, there's increasing research at, you know, at down to 12 weeks, eight weeks, at least we know there's a receptor. So I don't want to be too heavy handed, but we also don't know how, I mean, we can't be in utero and say, are you awake? What do you know? Um, one of the best things I've heard about this is this, uh, it was the anesthesiologist, I believe, who said they called it um, a procedural memory. When even before we, we can complain about it, they were able to show that babies um, from very young fetal ages, if you bug them enough, later on, they have changes. If the same 
noxious stimuli is applied to them. Hmm. They have a fetal, they have a procedural memory of being hurt and it changes them. But you know what? We do that as adults. Something traumatic happens to us. We don't always remember all the details, but we get in a situation and we start feeling uncomfortable and you don't always know why. And some of it is kind of that you're, our bodies are programmed to keep us safe. So if something has happened to us, we often can react before we know that we're not in a safe spot. And yet we are created, whether that's a soul, whether it's a guardian angel or your neurons telling you, get out of the way. I don't know. But that combination, we are, we are kept safe. Um, in amazing ways that we don't always understand. A little uh, humility before the science we haven't yet discovered um, and just awe at, at how much we still have to discover. One of the things I wanted to ask you was that being a, a doctor in who is pro-life in the medical community, that can be a real challenge because I'm sure lots of your colleagues don't agree with you there. And yet you are part of a college of physicians that does, in fact, support, uh, support you in your pro-life beliefs. If you could talk a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people, A, don't know about the pro-life college of physicians that you're part of. And, and B, I think a lot of patients might be able to tell their pro-life doctors, because all the patients know who they're taught, the doctors that are pro-life. But the doctors themselves, a lot of them don't know. So if you would tell us which, uh, what physicians group, what college are you part of? The American College of Pediatricians, or ACPEDS, is a pro-life, pro-family group of pediatricians. Um, and it's really only in, in the last couple of years that I had the great joy of discovering them. Once again, it was someone in the audience who, rec- who recommended them to me. I was speaking at a conference and they said, oh, are you part of ACPEDS? And I said, who? <laughs> um, uh, because I didn't know there was anyone out there. So first of all, to the doctors out there, we exist, um, which is astonishing um, because you're right. There, there's quite a bit of pushback about, you know, oh, that's just hocus pocus, weird, religious, crazy people. No. <laughs> and there, there is a growing number of us. Um, who get to say, yeah, I'm not always in charge. And thank goodness, because there's a Lord who knows better than I do and helps quite a bit. Um, so the American College of Pediatricians is amazing. As opposed to some other groups, the most well-known is the um, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which, while it has some brilliant doctors, they have developed this pro advocacy, left-leaning arm that has stifled a lot of people from speaking out about topics and even being able to publish um, truth about whether it's transgender issues. Please don't give your your kids um, steroids that are going to sterilize and alter them at an age when you wouldn't even let them choose what they're going to get for dinner. Means that doesn't make sense, um, as well as advocating for things you know in my world, like um, all the prenatal screening, 
prenatal screening cannot become a euphemism for kill the baby because they're not perfect. And that's just horrifying. And yet that's how it's being used. Um, I, after all the miscarriages, I had the privilege of, of successfully, we had babies, but I kept getting asked along the way, don't you want to do more screening? I'm like, no, <laughs> because it doesn't change the outcome. It's a boy or a girl, and I'm, I promise to care about them. And you cannot believe the amount of pushback I got from the obstetricians. Um, and I was with high-risk doctors because I was, quote, old by then, you know, being above 35, um, having babies. And they were like, what do you mean? Uh, you're not going to find out every possible thing. I'm like, because it's a baby. <laughs> That's all that matters. The first diagnosis is it's a baby and anything else comes afterward and never negates the first diagnosis. Hmm. It's wow. a little boy or a little girl. Sorry, the original question about ACPs. This is um, a pro-family um, group of doctors and it's not, it, there's, there's folks from every persuasion of religion, but it's people who have figured out that Life and intact families help us survive better um, and better care for each other. So, yeah, that's what ACPs, their heart is all about. It's not only um, one religious group, um, which is actually for me really cool, um, and a gathering of like-minded folks who truly are meeting such courageous doctors. I, I'm just you know, one small, tiny piece um, of some amazing people who are also out there. You have been given quite the journey in your life from uh, <laughs> where our Lord took you from uh, and where you've come now. Um, you know, if you were to do it all again, despite its hardships, would you? Oh, gosh, yeah. I wouldn't change any of it because um, I'm... You know, our Lord has a better imagination than even I do. Um, and where I, I don't know what he's got, you know, in store, which actually I try not to ask because it's usually terrifying. If I knew, I would probably like, you know, curl up in the fetal position and, you know, in a corner and go, you have got, actually, I've tried. I've tried to say you have got the wrong person. This is not what I should be doing. And yet he was going, come on, come on in. Um, and I just promised to show up and, and use his, whatever gifts and talents that he wants to give to me. My biggest fear is facing him and not having used the talents he's given me to the best extent that scares me. Um, living here and now in this bizarre time. Okay. Perhaps that's why we're created, all of us, for this exact time and place. He doesn't make mistakes. Not only does God not make mistakes, he keeps all his promises. Um, and he already promised, he's already promised us what the ending is. So now how are we going to get there? So yes, the road that I've taken has been <laughs> a strange one, and it's probably going to get stranger. But it's his road, and I get to follow it. Amen. Robin, it's been a great privilege and honor for me to speak with you. God bless you. And thank you. God bless. Thanks. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. 
Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we are communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.